Well, let's, let's begin things. Uh, this morning, we are continuing our look at the Apostles' Creed. We're going to be here for uh, a couple months, April, May, some of June as well. Um, the, the Apostles' Creed was one of the earliest statements of faith from the first Christians. And, and last week, we affirmed the line that we believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And with that single statement, this creed is separating Christianity from a number of other world religions, asserting that God is the creator of heaven and earth, distances our faith, distances Christianity from faiths such as Hinduism or or other pantheistic religions. Pantheism is a, a worldview that believes that uh, you know God is a part of creation, right? Everything. Pan comes from uh, the Greek, it might be Latin too, I don't know, I don't know Latin, I don't even really know Greek that well either, but pan means everything, all, and so theism is this word that means God, and so everything is God, that's what a a number of Eastern religions and other pantheistic, especially a lot of ancient um, religions believe that, and so as a result, stating that God is the creator implies that there is a distinction, right, separating God from the rest of creation. So right out of the gates, the creed begins this narrowing of worldview, narrowing the window of what it means to believe in God. Now this week, we're going to look at the first portion of the creed that begins to describe in detail the person of Jesus Christ. So last week, as I just said, the creed separated Christianity from a number of Eastern worldviews. This morning, it begins to create some separation from Judaism and Islam. Now, Islam, just just for the record, was not a global faith at the time of the the writing of this creed, but nonetheless, right, the expression of Jesus Christ as God's son is incredulous to these other expressions of monotheistic faith. Judaism and Islam would find that incredulous that we would assert that God, uh, that Jesus is the son of God. And what we're going to see this morning, so we're going to be in this section of Jesus for, gosh, good four or five weeks um, detailing the different elements of it. Like next week, we'll look at the incarnation. Uh, And and this is the longest section of the creed, but what's contained in this part of the creed is is the same thing that the bulk of the New Testament sought to justify. One of the primary purposes of writing the New Testament, the books that you find in the New Testament, is to explain who this Jesus was, what he did, and how our lives are different as a result of that. And so this morning, what we're going to, uh, to assert, affirm, is our belief in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. And so as we did last week, uh, I want us to affirm together the elements of the creed that we've been looking up to at this point. Remember, we're going to kind of each week add one more statement to that. And so the words are going to be up on the screen as soon as I can find it. All right, so friends... If you would join me in reciting this together, what do you believe? We believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. That's where we're going to stop today. Um, I'll leave that up there for a little bit while we go through this. So there are three elements of this clause. I keep pointing that way. Go here. Down here is where it is for the, 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 those streaming online. There are three elements of this clause that we're going to look at together. First is the name 
of Jesus Christ? Right? Does his name tell us anything about him? Secondly, we'll look at that, those two words that say that he is the only son of God. And so not only is this going to focus uh, on Jesus as the, the second person of the Trinity, we're going to begin this exploration of this unification, the union between his divine nature and his human nature, his divinity and his humanity. And finally, we'll look at the last two words in the section, uh, our Lord. What does it mean for us to view Jesus as our Lord? And then we'll close as I am going to try to do each week with a few pieces of application to help us put these truths into practice in our lives. So let's begin by looking at the name of Jesus Christ. So Jesus was already named before he was born on the earth. Uh, in Matthew chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, uh, this is one of these, you know, if you go to church around Christmas time, you might hear these passages. Uh, an angel, uh, Mary is pregnant with Jesus, and an angel appears to Joseph, the man who was Jesus's adoptive father. And he tells him, he says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. We'll look at that specific language next week. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So the name Jesus was, was already assigned to him before he was even born. Jesus is the Greek equivalent of his Hebrew name, which was Joshua, or if you want to be even more precise, because that brings some Latin into it, uh, Yeshua. The name Yeshua means Yahweh saves or, or Yahweh rescues. Some people translate it either way. And so we looked at this last week. If you tuned in last week, uh, Yahweh, we talked about being this intimate name for, for God. And so through the naming of Jesus as Yeshua is indicating something about him, that God will save, God will rescue through him. And, and we see this right in the text. The angel says, you shall call his name Jesus because he will save or rescue people from their sins. Now, names were very important in, in the Hebrew culture. And, and in our society, we have a tendency to, to pick names that we like the sound of or, uh, you know, that are real trendy uh, at the time. But as you read the Old Testament, you see children's names were meant to tell a story sometimes uh, positive and sometimes a statement of judgment. For example, there's a, uh, Hosea, if you've ever read that book, uh, it, it's, it's a, a prophecy of judgment over the people of, of God because they had, you know, they had wandered, they were wayward. And uh, God tells Hosea to name his son, not my people. How would you like to have that as your name? Hey, not my people, you know, go wash the dishes. Like, right? so, so they used names very clearly to communicate something especially if God names the child for you, something that, that is going on with them. So the name Yeshua is foreshadowing the type of work that God was preparing to do through the child. Now that being said, Jesus or, or, or Yeshua uh, would have been a very common name in, in that age. What sets Jesus apart from the other you know, little, little Yeshuas running around uh, is the title that goes with his name, Christ. Now just, just for make sure we're all on the same page. Christ is not Jesus' last name, right? I, I think in, in our culture, it's very easy to think that, you know, Jesus Christ and, you know, throw an H in the middle and it sounds like, you, you know, got a, got a full name that someone's saying. Uh, but Christ is a title. It is the Greek form of the Hebrew word Messiah, which literally means anointed one. 
In the literature of the Old Testament, the Messiah was a figure that God would raise up from the line of David. There's promises in 2 Samuel 7 that talk about this future descendant of David who would break Israel out of their bondage and return the, the, the nation of the, the Hebrew people to a, a position of prominence on the national stage. Now, as a result of this, the, the, uh, by the time that Jesus walked the earth, the Hebrew understanding of Messiah was a bit skewed. And we most clearly see this in the gap between the triumphal entry, right? That, the Palm Sunday, uh, the week before Easter. So what happened then to what happened about five, six days later on Good Friday, right? When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the crowds were celebrating, right? The Messiah, their rightful king, has finally coming into the city. And the fact that this Messiah was coming into Jerusalem meant that it was time for them to, you know, throw out those pesky Romans, bring us back to power. But we see Jesus entering not as a military, militaristic hero, but a servant. Uh, even the fact that he's riding a donkey uh, indicates this. Uh, he's not riding a war horse. He's not going to war. He's riding, it was a, the, the donkey was a symbol of peace that he was coming in on. So these same folks who were expecting the conquering king and, and, you know, and celebrated his arrival, less than a week later were feeling disenchanted and they called for his execution. Hey, he didn't come on the path that they had expected. But it's really, it's important to note that Jesus was the one. He did free Israel, and for that matter, all the nations of the world, from a different kind of bondage. He fulfilled what God said he was going to do, but more on that in two weeks. So the name of Jesus Christ, the name of Jesus with the title Christ, provides this unification of roles that God had been preparing the Hebrew people for some time. I, I alluded to this at the beginning of the service. Because there were three traditional roles, the divine roles, if you will, God-given roles for the Hebrew people. It was the prophet, the priest, and the king. Right? The prophets were the mouthpieces of God. They were to communicate to the people what God wanted them to know, communicating his will. The priests were the mediators, right? representing the people before God especially as it pertained to their worship of God. So the, the priests, for example, were the overseers of the sacrificial system. The king was the militaristic leader who would protect, who would shepherd his people. You see, see this language of shepherds, especially in Ezekiel, described as the, the leaders, the kings of the day. Now, usually people were given these roles by God, but they only held one. Right? You were a king, or you were a prophet, or you were a priest. But here we see Jesus as the embodiment of the unification of all three. Jesus is our prophet. He's communicating the truths of God to his people. He's our priest. He advocates to God on our behalf. And he is our king, our leader who protects us and cares for us, his people. So much of this is wrapped up in the name of Jesus Christ. So that's his name. So the next statement in the creed is that this Jesus is the only Son of God. Last week, we took some time to talk, chat about the Trinity, you know, one being comprised of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Here in the Creed, we see Jesus, that his role as the Son is in reference to his place in the Trinity, right? We believe in Jesus Christ, his, God's, the Father's, only Son. In Jesus' own words, uh, Matthew 11, verse 21, he says this. He says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. 
So Jesus, in saying this, is clearly claiming to be God's son in the scriptures, right? He claimed this special relationship with God the Father, something that yielded a charge of blasphemy against him by the religious establishment. They, they understood what he w- was saying. They understood for what it was, that like Jesus was claiming divine and equal status with God. Now, this is really important for the early church fathers to have affirmed in the creed. Because the early years, in the early years of the church, there was some disagreement as, as to who precisely this Jesus was. Right? Jesus was both God and man simultaneously. John chapter 1, verse 14, part of John's introduction to his gospel says the same thing. It says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Right? The word, which earlier in the passage John is saying is on equal footing with God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. This word took on human flesh, moved towards us. Jesus Christ was somehow, mysteriously, a combination of human and divine. But this wasn't like, you know, don't think about this in like a a, a demigod sort of way, like ancient Greek myths. You know, the the merger of divine and humanist was nothing new to the culture around him, right? Think about people, if you've ever studied Greek mythology in school, you know, think about people like Hercules, or maybe you watched, you know, the the Disney movie Hercules. You know, someone who had Zeus as a father and a human earthly mother. So Hercules, like, had some of the perks of being divine, right? He had, like, his super strength. But he wasn't quite up to snuff, right? He, he, he wasn't able to make it to the Parthenon of, uh, of Mount Olympus with, you know, the other, the other 12 gods and goddesses that were the supreme ones. See, see, Jesus wasn't like Hercules. He didn't just have a mixture of divine and human blood or DNA. Right? Jesus wasn't like 50% God and 50% human or, you know, whatever, whatever percentage you want to add up to to balance the equation. The early church councils affirmed that Jesus was at the same time fully God and fully man, right? If if you think about numbers, right? I'm I'm a numbers guy. 100% God and 100% man, if you will, right? And and much like our conversation about the Trinity last week, right? There's elements of mystery in this. We, We don't precisely know how this worked out, but the early council of Chalcedon was able to confirm that Jesus was one person, with two natures, both this human and divine. But this, the fact that they are affirming this was important in the time, because in the first few centuries after the death of Jesus, there were many faulty ways of understanding who he was. Something that we, we don't use this word a lot in our, in our modern language, but uh, it, it's what the early church called heresy. Remember I talked at the very beginning of, uh, of the sermon series about the thinking of the creed as a fence? We may not know with precision, you know, exhaustively who God is in the middle, but we can build this fence around him knowing that he's inside it. If you're outside of that fence, it's heresy. It's, it, it's improper, inappropriate ways to understand who Jesus is, faith. Because right? it was clear that Jesus had upended social norms, had you know, established his radical kingdom through miraculous means, but there were many who couldn't view him apart from their own biases, of how they viewed the world. And so just by way of an example, were the Gnostics. So not, Gnostic comes from, I'm tell, teaching you all kinds of Greek. Some of you guys are like, man, my eyes are rolling in the back of my head. But Gnostic comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. That's what it means. So think about like, 
it, it, we have someone who might be agnostic, right? A means without, so an agnostic is someone who feels like they don't have knowledge of the divine. So gnosis, a gnostic though, they felt like they had special knowledge of the, of the divine. They thought they had special knowledge of the world. And so there were all kinds of gnostics in Jesus' day and age. But what they had in common is that they believed that the physical world, the tangible, the fleshly world was bad and everything spiritual was good. And so the goal of Gnosticism was to reach enlightenment, right? Like discard the shell of a broken fleshly body and unite with the divine in the spiritual realm. That was what their goal was. As a result of this worldview, they didn't believe that Jesus in the flesh could be God, right? Because the flesh is bad. And so if, in order to just, you know, to defend that framework, if Jesus was here, he only like seemed to or appeared to be here, right? Like that he was like a physical phantom, that his divine spirit was masquerading as the flesh. Because in their minds, there's no way that he would taint himself with a physical form. Or some professed what was called the adoptionism theory, right? Jesus as a baby was just human. But then what we see during his baptism, when the spirit descends upon him in the form of a dove, that's when the, the spirit, in, in their mind, the spirit and flesh merged together. And then right before, his, uh, right before his death on the cross, when he cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In their minds, that's when the Spirit leaves, leaves him to die alone. Right? Because in their minds, God can't die. And so these are, these are flawed understandings of Jesus. Now, you know, some of you might be like, well, this is, sure, that was like 2,000 years ago. But we see some of these same trends continue in today's modern society. Because for, for many, for instance, Jesus was just a, a moral teacher in our day and age. If Jesus was just a moral teacher, then that has significant ramifications of how you practice faith. If the Spirit of God merely descended on Jesus of Nazareth at his baptism and left at his crucifixion, then that says something about our, our theology, the way we view the physical world. Do we hold that the physical world is broken? that it's beyond repair, and that all God wants to do is to take us into this ethereal heaven? It, it, it has ramifications. If Jesus was not co-eternal, right, always existing, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God in the beginning. If Jesus wasn't co-eternal, but was a later creation of God, a demi, demi-god or a, a, a super angel, then that ch- drastically changes our understanding of, of the faith. Right? Like I said, this has modern implications. There are many who... who uh, want to consider Jesus as just a moral teacher. Right? Think about him in a, in a very sentimental way, that he's this peaceful and wise teacher, a man of morals who gives us a set of proverbs that we can, you know, we can choose to apply to our life a la carte. Right? He, he, he was never God in their minds, and so then there's no reason to revolutionize, you know, completely radically upend our lives around him. For many, it's just like, just take his advice the same that we would take advice from Dr. Phil. Or if we believe that Jesus was a lower creation, not always existing with God, right, that, that puts us in good company with the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons. They don't believe that Jesus was God. They, don't, they reject the nature of the Trinity. So you can see the purpose of the creed is, is trying to provide a framework, a consistent framework of what it means to follow God, to follow Jesus. And it's still applicable in, in, in today's age, because, you know, I, I know over here at the bus stop here by the CVS, I run into Jehovah's Witnesses there all the time, and they, they know their stuff. 
they, they understand what they've been, been trained to say. And they're, they're what I would call a misreading uh, of the Bible. And so I think it's important for us to be grounded in these biblical truths to make sure that we, we don't get led astray by, uh, by the, um, yeah, the, their, what, what appears, what sounds like very logical arguments. Now here also is why the divinity and humanity of Jesus is so important. So the basis of the gospel, the basis of the gospel, right, is that we are all sinners, that we have all done wrong, we've fallen short of God's standard. And in order to be redeemed, in order to get back in God's good graces, Jesus Christ lived the life, the perfect life, that we were unable to live, and he died the death that we deserved. Right? And, and, and in offering himself for our benefit, we are forgiven by God. We are forgiven of our life that we haven't lo- lived rightly. And we receive credit for his perfect life. Right? That, that's the gospel in, a, in the nutshell. But theologically speaking, Christ's humanity was important because he was a representative for us. Right? As I just said, he lived in our shoes and he lived the life that we couldn't. But his divinity was also crucial so that his death that he died on our behalf has, have, has efficacy, that it is effective in covering over our sins. Because only a human, a, a physical human being could have been a legitimate representative for us, but also at the same time only an infinite God could have carried the brutal weight of the world's sin on his shoulders. So we're going to look, next week, we're going to look a little bit more closely at his humanity. But the sonship of Jesus that we wanted to focus on today means that he is divine, co-eternal, and equal in power of the Father. It's crucial crucial for the gospel to have uh, uh, value in our lives. I know that was a lot. That was like some pretty... That, that, that wasn't like theology 101. We're, we're getting like 201, 301 level courses there. Let, let's move to our last statement for the morning. Jesus is our Lord. Jesus wasn't just our Savior, but he is also our Lord. Right? He didn't merely die for us, paying the price for our unfaithfulness, but he also has authority over us. And we're going to see elements of this later in the creed, right? We'll see that he ha- will, is risen from the dead and that he is reigning, sitting at the right hand of the Father, right? A place of authority. Therefore, he has a right to rule over us. Right? Jesus as Lord hearkens back to what we talked about last week in the name of God, right? That name Yahweh. I will be what I will be. I am what I am. When you see the word Yahweh translated in your English Bibles, I mean, if you open up to Exodus 3, you you, you can see this. Tell them the Lord has sent you. Lord appears as all capital letters, L-O-R-D. Now, sometimes it's easy for us to miss because the O-R-D portion are are shrunk a little bit. So it's not like, usually it's like a big L and then a smaller but capital O-R-D. Anytime you see that in Scripture, that is the English translation for the divine name of God. And so when, when we see this title of Lord picked up in the New Testament about Jesus, it doesn't just mean that he has authority in the way that like a boss might have over an employee. Because that, that word Lord could mean that in the ancient Greek. 
But because you have this bulk of foundational understanding of Lord as God, that points that that's what, you know, Jesus is being declared as God on equal footing. Right, Thomas, doubting Thomas after Jesus' resurrection falls down, you know, wants to, wants to put his fingers in the wounds, wants to see them. He falls down to worship Jesus and he says, my Lord and my God. When he says that, he's not saying like two separate things. He's almost restating the same thing twice in that. This, this person who he followed as rabbi for three years has displayed that he's not just a man, but is God himself points to his divine authority, which indicates his rule over us. And so what that means is that we ought to submit to him. We should not resist his rule, right? He is worthy to have dominion and power over the entire cosmos, and that includes us, right? The same Jesus who invaded Palestine some 2,000 years ago to establish his kingdom on earth, that same Jesus now invades our lives, with the same purpose, to establish his kingdom of love, of grace, of mercy, of justice in each of us. And so in the creed, we recognize that Jesus is our Lord. Corporately, we all together are under his sovereignty, his rule. But we can only say our Lord if we have first said my Lord. And we'll circle back to that point at, at the end of, of, of application. Right? But Jesus is our Lord. So let's see where the rubber meets the road this morning. We've looked at the name of Jesus Christ. We've discussed the divinity of Jesus as the Son of God, the second member of the Trinity. Because of this, we see Jesus appropriately. He is not merely a friend or Savior. Jesus calls us friends. He is a friend, but he's not merely a friend. He's also our Lord. So let's start by thinking about his name. Now, if, you are, if you're here this morning, you're tuning in and... You know, this idea of following Jesus is, is a little newer to you. This is a great place to start. Because I shared earlier that the name Yeshua literally means that Yahweh, God, saves or God rescues. Right? It is through this name, quite literally, the name of Jesus that brings salvation, that rescues each of us. One of the times that Peter and John were arrested in the book of Acts, they were making their case before the religious leaders. And having given their defense, they said this. This comes out of chapter 4. They said, And there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Salvation comes and comes alone through the name of Jesus. Now, our problem is, is that there are so many other things that we try to place our salvation in. We look to the summary line of our bank account to provide comfort. We look to alcohol or drugs to save us from the pain or the emptiness that we're going through. We look to the media to tell us what to think about the world. We look to our jobs to dictate our purpose in life. We looked to science to tell us with precision that the way the world works. We look at so many things that are not God to give us the salvation that we crave. Now, many of the items on that list that I just mentioned aren't, in, aren't inherently bad, but they make terrible saviors, right? Those things might be able to bring some level of comfort, but they cannot bring salvation, nor can they bring us, nor can they give us the tools that we need to save ourselves. Jesus Christ is the name that can save us with effectiveness, with efficacy. 
we are helpless without him. Jesus understands our plight and is powerful enough to save us. Now this is important because when we come to terms with reality, it's like what we sang at the, the, the uh, King of My Heart, when the night is holding on to me, when I need salvation from somewhere and I can't do it myself, when we come to the reality that not only can we not save ourselves, but all these things that we've surrounded ourselves with can't save us either, then we're primed, I think, to have an encounter with Jesus Christ. Now, I know we have a number of folks in our church who have been part of AA and NA, and there's a lot of wisdom in their 12-step method. It reminds me of steps one and two in that 12-step method. You might have heard that the first step is acknowledging that there is a problem. The language they use is that we are powerless over whatever vice it is in our lives. We are powerless over that, and it has made our lives unmanageable. Then step two is we need a power greater than ourselves to restore us to sanity. Now, I want want to tell you this morning that the Bible tells us that the power greater than ourselves, the power that seeks to restore that which is lost, that seeks to repair that which is broken, that power is Jesus Christ. We can't do it. We need a power greater than ourselves in Jesus Christ to bring us deliverance, to bring us salvation. Romans 10 verse 9 tells us that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. What that means is you will have salvation. You will receive salvation. That's it. Confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is the only thing that can save you. And turn your life over to him. In summary, that first take home for us is that there is only one name that can save us, namely Jesus Christ. And whether, whether you're coming to Jesus and conf- you know, believing in him and confessing him for the first time or the you know, 1,000th time, it's that daily process of us of walking with God and saying, God, I can't do it on my own. I need to trust in your name. But that name lends itself to the second take home this morning. Philippians 2, 9 through 11 fills us in on the power of the name of Jesus. It reads this, and I, I paraphrased it this morning. Therefore, God has exalted, highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Eric Mason, he's a, a pastor out in the kind of Philadelphia area. He wrote, a, he wrote a book called uh, Beat God to the Punch. And in it, basically what his title, what the summary of the book is, is he's, he's using this verse. He's saying, listen, all of us, whether we choose to believe in Jesus or not, are going to have to bend the knee to the lordship of Jesus, the rule of Jesus. Since that is a fact, beat God to the punch. Don't make him bend the knee. Bend it willingly. It's basically what he's saying there. Right? The name of Jesus doesn't just save us, but also reveals that he is Lord and that we ought to surrender to him. So that first piece of application involves the daily need to preach the gospel to ourselves, turning from lesser things and turning to Jesus. But this one reminds us to die to ourselves daily. If Jesus is Lord, it means that he is, he is a plan for our lives that our natural inclination might be to balk at, 
we, we want Jesus to kind of like prescribe some medication for us, but we don't want him getting too involved in our lives. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Bumper sticker theology that says God is my co-pilot is not helpful. If God is your co-pilot, switch seats. And I know some of you are like, my goodness, he is a broken record about that. But I know that I need that daily reminder that I'm in the wrong seat of the car. Every day I get in the car thinking, all right, where am I going? Where am I taking us today? And I got to remember that I'm the passenger, not the driver. Too often our faith is focused on wanting God to be our navigator, right? Like, God, just guide me through these paths of life. Tell me where to go, but I still want to be the one gripping that wheel, right? Not wanting to let go. Having the freedom. I, I want to have my own freedom. Turn to the left or to the right. Because we want to be the ones in control. But God calls us to, to let him drive the car. We're just along for the ride. When we submit to God in this way, when we submit to Jesus, our prayers go from, Jesus, how do I get through this situation? To, where are you going to take me today, Lord? So this week, I want you to f- consider this relationship to your own life. Do you find yourself surrendering to what the Lord, what Jesus wants to do in your life? Or do you find yourself continually trying to wrest control of the steering wheel back from God? Let me give you another metaphor to put it another way. If you think about your life as a house, when you invite God into your home, does he get full access to the structure? Maybe you got some like nasty centipede-filled basements that you're like trying to keep God out of. Like, don't go down there, God. It's, It's pretty gross down there. Does he get full creative control about what paint color you're going to put in your living room or what, what and how much furniture you're going to get? Sometimes in our lives, I'm going to keep this, stretching this metaphor as far as I can, sometimes in our lives it seems easier to just kind of keep putting coats of paint, maybe some sealant over that moldy drywall. Jesus wants to come in and he wants to rip that drywall out, replace it with something new and better. It's going to be a mess might be painful or inconvenient, but that's what God wants to do is to take our messy, broken lives and make something beautiful out of them for his glory. When we submit to the authority of Jesus as Lord, we give him permission to do what he will with our lives. And remember, Jesus cannot be our Lord as the creed affirms unless he is first my Lord. So that's, that's if, I mean, if I would be presumptuous enough to give you homework this week, right? I want you to, to to inventory the places in your life where you have not given God full access. What are the places that you've you've, uh, kept him, tried to keep him at arm's length? Figure out what rooms you've kept him out of and invite him into those long, locked away spaces to see that transformation that he wants to work start going through in your lives. Join me in prayer. Lord, it can be scary for us to open up our, our whole lives to you. We like to be the one in control. We like to be the one that, I don't know, just keep this metaphor going, God, entertains and shows all the nice parts of our lives and wants to get affirmation from you in those places. But there, there's a lot of, all of us have secrets that we've kept locked away, places that we want to have control over, 
whether that's, whether that's our friends or money or our jobs or that vice, you know, that addiction that we have, whatever it might be, God. We say, Jesus, come in, but not too close. Lord, send your spirit to us this week to inventory the places where we have tried to keep you at arm's length. Give us the courage to open those doors to you knowing that the process of transformation can be painful, that the process of transformation can be messy. But each and every day, you want to see us more and more living into the picture, the truth of who we are in Jesus Christ, that perfection. So every day, God, would you bring us one step closer to that by your grace? And remind us as we sang this morning that you delight in showing mercy, that your kindness triumphs over any judgment that we might fear. May it give us the courage and boldness to worship you as Lord. In Christ's name.